Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. Our guest today on the podcast is a dual degree holder from Syracuse University who earned degrees in speech communications from the College of Visual and Performing Arts and broadcast journalism from Newhouse, but really he combined and forged his own academic program, which is a really cool feature of our guest here, David Parks. He has a long and distinguished career uh, working on a lot of TV shows and award shows you've probably seen during the course of your viewing habits, including the first ever virtual Daytime Emmy Awards as the executive producer and director. This year's award show took on a whole different tenor with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, There were different categories that were broken out by the sports Emmys, the news and documentary category. There's a whole bunch of different daytime Emmy categories that David Parks has been working on as executive producer and director. The sports program already aired on August 11th. The news and documentaries category will be airing live on September 14th. It's a whole brand new challenge, I'm sure, David, uh, for your career to get to go through orchestrating all of these moving pieces. Welcome to the podcast, first and foremost. I appreciate you making some time to join us here today. Sure. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It means a lot to, uh, for you to reach out to me. Well, I thought that your story, David, was so cool to kind of go into, and I alluded to it earlier, kind of forging your own dual major, and we'll talk about Syracuse University. You're clearly a passionate alum. You played on the men's soccer team. We'll talk about your student athletics career, what it was like to be a part of the men's soccer program, and some cool athletic stories, including David was there for the first games at the new Carrier Dome. Uh, He had one year with Manly Fieldhouse, so we'll kind of reminisce about some of the athletics endeavors you got to witness and watch and participate in. But David, these daytime Emmys, it's fascinating to me how, what must have gone into pulling off an award show virtually. When did you realize that this was going to be a different daytime Emmy process and award show than you were used to previously? Well, I would say back in February, you know, the same time that the whole, you know, COVID thing started to manifest itself, um, there were signs that we might have some issues doing the normal thing, which was 1,500, 2,000 people sitting in an auditorium or in a theater for a, a regular award show that most people are used to. That, and, and as the weeks and months went on and more and more regulations uh, started popping up regarding the number of people that could gather, especially in California, which was, which was a little bit ahead of the curve on those restrictions, we realized that we had to do something else. What that was going to be, we had no idea. We didn't know what was possible, and we just started discussing it and exploring options. Was um, When was the actual ultimate decision made to take this award show and these award show categories and make them solely virtual? It was, it was not too far ahead of when we did them. So uh, there are a, a lot of different Emmy Award shows. Uh, So daytime encompasses, this year was going to be three different shows as part of daytime television. Um, The the awards that are more performance-oriented awards, like soap operas, um, uh, the talk shows, uh, home improvement shows, uh, news entertainment shows, things like that. 
are all honored as part of daytime, as well as uh, children's shows, animation, uh, categories like that. And there's, there's the technical side of it, and then there's also the, the programming itself uh, for the shows. So what happened was CBS came to the Academy and said, we'd, we'd like to put something on the air. So they developed a pre-recorded uh, um, show where what they would do is they asked every single nominee to record an acceptance speech ahead of time. And then whoever ended up winning, they would just play back that particular um, speech. It's a pretty standard way of doing things when you can't or don't want to be live. And it was a, a very, probably at the time, smart and safe way to still have the awards and honor the people that, you know, had worked so hard last year to, to earn a, nom a nomination and produce such great television. Uh, but that only covered a small portion of all the awards that we give out. Uh, it was mainly the, the awards that most people knew about. Again, like the soap operas, the, the you know, best talk show and so forth. That still left literally hundreds of other awards to do something with. And this is where um, the, the Academy really got bold. And I give a lot of credit to uh, Adam Sharp, who is the, uh, the CEO and president of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. They're based in New York. Uh, and they oversee daytime, uh, sports Emmys, news Emmys, documentary, tech Emmys. This year, the Spanish language has been carved, carved out of um, all those other shows that used to be incorporated into it. Now there's going to be a, a Spanish award show, um, uh, student awards, and so forth. So uh, he turned to me and said, uh, and his team within the academy, what do you think we can do? And we're like, well, we, maybe we could do something live, live. I, I, you know, maybe we, it's a hybrid. We have a live host who's announcing the categories and we do the pre-recorded stuff. And he said, but is there a way to do this really live where everybody is coming in and watching it live? All the nominees are live. And, you know, we were like, well, I don't know. Let's, let's look into it. So there are a lot of solutions for different aspects of a broadcast, uh, and they, it, 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 it's evolving faster than what we did last week is different than what we did three weeks ago. Like that's how fast it's evolving technically. And um, so uh, a guy named Steve Ulrich who um, oversees events and comes out of the, uh, out of NBC sports world. Um, he had investigated a number of options and I went to my kind of go-to people who I've worked with in broadcast for many, many years and said, here's what, here's what we want to do. How, do, how are we going to do this? And it happened that one of them, uh, a tech producer, uh, who I have about a 15 year relationship with said, well, we just developed something for game shows that might work for what you're doing. It allows us to bring live feeds from anywhere in the country and interact with each other in real time with low latency, meaning no delay, which was very, very key to this. It's one thing to have you know, everybody come in live and then you're waiting and then you're waiting again. This allowed for instantaneous feedback. So we discovered that this was an option. This was a realistic option. And the more we vetted it, the more we thought we can do this. There are so many moving parts in general to get a regular live award show. This has never been done before, right? To have multiple 
of the live virtual broadcasts being done with hundreds of nominees across the country and across the world, I'm sure in some circumstances uh, for the different Emmy award categories, how do you even like start to arrange with the hosts, with the nominees, like what was that conversation and that process like? Because you need buy-in from everybody. You could have the technical wherewithal, but if the presenters aren't on board, if the nominees think it's too much of a trouble or a hassle, this isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I categorize it as one of those things that if we knew then what we know now, we probably would have been too scared to do it. You know, it's like, it's like that naivete and the challenge overwhelmed any common sense that said this could be a huge disaster. And, um, you know, so it was just kind of going step by step and talking to people and think, saying, you know, can we do this? And you're right, uh, just putting on a big a show on its own is, is hard enough. Um, we were definitely the first award show to ever do this. There are aspects of what we did that have been happening for a while. It's just bringing the number of feeds from people's homes where you don't have control over their infrastructure the way you do. Look, the Olympics is a, is a huge broadcast. I mean, it's unbelievable what, what's pulled together for the Olympics or the World Cup. And they have feeds coming in from all these different venues and all, but it's all set up by the network. The infrastructure is really strong. We're asking people to kind of come to us from their phone. And I want to be clear, this isn't Zoom. Everybody, there, we had this joke, it's not Zoom. Zoom is phenomenal. Zoom is great. We're talk, talking to each other over Zoom. You know, you have meetings over Zoom. This is not Zoom. This is allowing us to take individual feeds and manipulate them within a broadcast however we want, as opposed to just one big mosaic that, where everybody can see each other. Um, so we approached it like we would do a real broadcast. The other thing that was difficult was, you know, I consider myself a TV first and foremost, a TV producer and director. I come out of broadcast, what my training is in. Somewhere over the years, the decades, I have also gotten involved with producing the event itself. This year, we didn't have the money, the budget to do it. Uh, and everybody involved was wearing a lot of hats. It was basically this incredible team of people at the Academy and me and then when we finally executed, then we had our tech team and brought in some more people. But um, the planning of it really fell mostly on, on the Academy people. And they just started reaching out. We just started reaching out. It seems like it's, a, it's more than a three-ring circus trying to pull this off. It, it is. And again, you'd be stunned if you knew how few people. I mean, on the, on the planning stages for the most of it, there, were, there was really a very small team of like, four of us that were really the executive staff, the senior team, like figure, like figuring out what we were going to do. Then we brought in our tech producer, a guy named Doug Armstrong out of uh, LA. Uh, he has a company called Touring Video. He was the one who kind of sold me on this, um, this technology. He had partnered with a company out of the UK called uh, Ionoco um, that had created this ability. It's a system called PATH. Uh, it stands for play at home. And it's like I said, this low latency way for people to feed signals to us. It's like normally my crew list at the end of the day is 150 people. This crew list 
at the end of the day was like 25 maybe on, on show day. Any system is all, you know, any chain is only as strong as its weakest link link. And that was the scariest part of it was I was confident in the, the part of it that involved producing a show and in the plan we had, and even in a good portion of the technical related to the control room. And even though I was directing remotely, you know, once the comms were up and I could talk to people from my living room and I could see my multi-view monitors, I felt good about that. You know, what we were proposing was significant in terms of, you know, trying to help. It's like, help us help you. And that's why we started small with digital, because if we couldn't get 35 people to buy into this, to spend a little extra time, like um, about a week before the show, we said, we're going to have you test our system. And if nobody did that, then that told us that we just can't engage with larger groups down the road. But they did. And we figured if we can pull off a 40-minute broadcast that probably isn't going to be seen by a ton of people as a test, even if, even if we crash and burn, it's okay. We, we tried it. You know, um, People in the industry who knew what we were doing and trying, they thought we were absolutely nuts, absolutely crazy. You know, We were watched very carefully by a lot of people that have to do what we're, that are thinking of doing what we're going to do later, some of the other big award shows. Well, you know, and, and David, it seems like even under normal circumstances with live TV in person in general, there's a risk for a crash and burn. There's a risk that things aren't going to go according to plan. And that seems like it was multiplied, multiplied tenfold or probably even way more than that with these virtual shows. But we've seen all of our entertainment get shifted virtually. We've seen the late night TV shows doing their programs from home. We've seen Saturday Night Live, which I thought was really impressive the way that SNL would pull off their live sketch improv comedy show without being in studio and having people, they had even had Tom Hanks host one of the episodes and I thought that was a really cool challenge. Is that something that, are you risk averse or do you kind of embrace an opportunity to really make some magic and make history? Because again, this has never been done before. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm like a dive in head first kind of guy. I mean, I, you know, I, I firmly believe that if you don't take risks in your career, you're not going to go anywhere. I mean, every of the scariest decisions that I had to make in my career about taking a job or doing certain things, every major step that I've taken, step up that I've taken have, has been a reward for that. So, I mean, I find live television, you know, I've worked in, in, in scripted, I've worked in reality TV, I've worked in live events, I've worked, I've done documentaries, I've done just about everything you could possibly want to try in the industry, because I'm, I'm a like, I'm, I'm a guy who's like, huh, never done that before. Sure, let's try that. Um, live, there's something about live, I love live, it is so exciting. And yeah, your heart beats fast. And if you plan properly, what, what makes other people really nervous, I, I kind of uncomfortable with, I guess, in a way. Um, what, the difference between what, we ju- what we're doing right now with the Emmys and anything else that I've done is that, is that so, much, so many aspects of it are new. Like I can plan for what happens if your power goes down? What happens if you lose your satellite feed? What happens if 
this, there, you can plan for all that when you've done it a whole bunch of times and you know what it takes to do it. This is, what do you do if three seconds before they're live on the air, you lose three out of five nominees? You know, you have, you still try and think, well, what can we do? But if it actually happens, it, you know, you don't have a show, you know, the guy who won can't give a speech award after award, you've got a problem. So, but I kind of thrive off it. I, I love the thrill. Given, given again, the risk factor, the potential for that epic crash and burn, what has been the worst uh, dilemma, worst problem that you encountered with pulling off this magic high wire act of getting the daytime Emmys done virtually? Well, I mean, you know, trusting people for sure, trusting the system. Um, like I said, we, we altered it a little bit. The, the, our initials, the first two shows we did, everything was mostly pre-programmed into a, a computer and, and it worked really well. The, the difficulty of it was that one, if that computer went down, the whole show goes down. Uh, two, it was really one operator doing what is normally three or four different jobs. So normally we would have a technical director who's punching up the show. And then we would have uh, a play, an EVS playback operator playing back videos like the nominee packages. And we would have a graphics op who's flying in all the graphics. This was all built into one system for the first two shows. Uh, it turned out that we decided for a variety of reasons, not having to do with not trusting that system, but some other things that we um, went back to a little bit more of a traditional control room where we had a real TD and a, a, um, a, a graphics op and a playback operator. Uh, it gave us a little more control uh, over things and allowed us to make changes a lot more easily. Because uh, if you had to fix a graphic, you couldn't be doing anything else on the on the computer system. It was, uh, so like I keep stressing, we it continues to evolve how we're going to do things. We're probably going to make some more changes for how we do news. Um, and uh, hopefully each one gets better. In a crazy way, we keep, you know, amping up what we're trying to accomplish instead of just saying this worked, let's do this again. Given that, you know, we went from digital dramas to children lifestyle and animation awards, where we went from seven awards to 22. We went from 35 nominees to like 105 nominees. We went from one host presenter in a single location to five all remotely. And then for sports, and we did it one week later, and then for sports, two weeks later, we went to 27 categories. We went to nine remote presenters, uh, dual hosts who were together, because they're a married couple, um, but from another location. And we integrated four major sports network studios, which is a whole nother, like, I mean, these people were unbelievable, and they did it just because they wanted to help us. They wanted to help honor their own people. But when you've got ESPN in Bristol and Fox Sports in LA and, and NBC uh, in Stanford and MLB uh, in New York, wherever they were, it's like, you, and you've got a whole team of people there helping you. It's like, wow, we, this is really amazing, but it's a lot to coordinate. Obviously, this is something that's near and dear to you, and you wouldn't take these risks when it comes to live television and the award show circuit if you didn't care a lot about, again, the award nominees, the recipients, putting out the best product possible. 
where did this interest in this line of work come from? How did you come about graduating from Syracuse and saying, you know what, I want to get into live TV, award show productions, and just really juggling all that goes into these shows? My path to where I am now was incredibly circuitous. I, I tell when I, when I speak to, you know, I'll speak to schools and classes and, and people and they'll say, so how did, you know, how do I get to where you are? And, and the first answer is you, you, you can't follow my path. Times have changed too much. It's, it, you know, the technology is different. Everybody kind of, you know, you, you can get here, but it'll be a different way. Uh, I, you know, the, the passion for it all, absolutely began at Syracuse. And I went to Syracuse, you know, a liberal arts major with the intent of, of majoring in political science and going to law school and moving back to Washington, D.C., where I'm from, and becoming a lawyer. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And at some point, I guess maybe second semester freshman year, I took the COM 107 class, which was, you know, open to any student. And this light bulb went off and I'm like, wait a minute, I can make a career out of TV. Okay. That looks fun. My mantra has always been to say yes, when opportunities present themselves. And I had zero experience in live television when I got a call from AOL productions, which back when AOL was in its heyday and they were the first company to start or, you know, or, uh, uh, internet provider to start streaming live concerts. And I got a call and they said, Hey, we have a concert that we want to stream live, uh, from the house of blues in, in Hollywood. Can you do that? And I lied and I said, yeah, of course, when, where, and let's, let's sure. And they said, terrific, we'll, we'll, we'll be back in touch. And I hung up and I was like, okay, now what am I going to do? Because I had no idea how to do a, a live broadcast. I had been involved. I mean, I worked for NBC Sports and, and so I'd been around it, but I was never going to be the man, you know, doing it. So I just called some people that I knew did know how to do it. And, you know, you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you in different ways and you watch and you listen and you pick their brains and you're not afraid to ask questions even if they if they seem like dumb questions and you learn and and I just really glommed on to the the live stuff and the more I did the more expertise I got and the more I, the calls were coming in uh, I do a lot of a lot of concert events I do uh, I've done a lot of sporting events um, and and then the, the award shows is just kind of the latest the latest thing I've done the Emmys for several years and, and the um, I did the NHL awards. I did, I worked with the NHL for four years um, doing live events for them in some ways they are all the same. In some ways they're very different and you keep adding to that knowledge. When you look back on it, what, what is your favorite project? What is your favorite uh, live event? What stands out to you? Or you can pick a couple, but what are some of the highlights for you when it comes to your career and what you've been proud of? I hope that the highlight hasn't happened yet. When I was working at, at AOL, I, we were doing these, these concerts about every three, every three weeks or so with A-list artists, you know, Jay-Z and Fall Out Boy and all these, all these major names. And it was a great job. My boss 
uh, a guy named Andre Micah, an Emmy award-winning, I mean, this guy, talk about a, a renaissance man in hybrid in a million ways. He left AOL. And I was like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? He's like, AOL is changing. There's a new guy coming in and everything we're doing is going to disappear. And I was like, I, I don't believe you. I, they, I just talked to the head of, you know, music and he said, your show is the one that we make all our money on and you're safe. He's like, I'm telling you this job is going away. So I, I stayed and he left and he called me up. This was in April of 2007. And he said, I have a project that I want you to, to come on, but it, you got to leave AOL to do it. And it was, I had never even heard of it. It was this thing called live earth. And, uh, and I'm like, what is that? He said, we're going to put on a series of concerts broadcast around the world to raise awareness for the climate crisis. If you remember live aid and live eight, this was that, but for the environment versus feeding people. And I was like, so when is it? And he said, it's on July 7th. And I said, okay, so this is April. So that's a year and three months. Sounds like a big undertaking, but you know, maybe we can do it. He goes, no, no, no. It's July of this year. And I'm like, you want to do a worldwide broadcast, basically major concerts for 24 straight hours in, on all seven continents, live, live, live. And you want to put the entire infrastructure together in three months. And he's like, yup. And I said, can't be done. There's, why would I leave this job for that? And he's like, okay. Uh, and I passed. And two days later on my birthday, I was told that my whole, everything I was doing was shutting down and I was being let go. And I got on the phone so fast with Andre and like, <laughs> because he had said, I'm going to move on. And I was like, everything's changing. I just got, I just got let go. They gave me like two weeks notice and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he says, told you. And I said, I'll come work for you. Is the job still there? I'll do anything. I'll be a PA. He's like, and he, he really milked it. And then finally he said, yeah, I held it open. I knew you would come around. <laughs> so long preamble to say uh, Live Earth was, was the most challenging, fun, incredible experience. I, I, if I had to pick one, and again, I've done a lot of really cool stuff, um, but what we did had, had also never been done before. We had an audience of over 2 billion people. We appeared on networks all over the world, including all the NBC networks, not just NBC, but, you know, USA all the all the networks that are owned and operated by um, NBC. We stage concerts in 10 different cities, including a bunch of scientists who happen to play music in the Antarctic. Everything fed live. I was in charge of, I was the supervising producer for Live Earth, which basically meant I was um, in charge of putting together this broadcast under my, my friend and mentor, Andre. Um, and it was an undertaking, like, it was unbelievable. I mean, the, our control room, our main control room was in London at the BBC. We had sent, put together teams of producers and directors and sent them to all the major locations. 
each one of that group was responsible for the broadcast of a concert that was being, the concert itself was a whole nother side of Live Earth. Those people, I didn't have anything to do with the staging of the concerts. And then at the end of the day, I got to pick which city I wanted to go to and produce that particular broadcast. So I went to Rio where we had close to a million people on the beach in Rio de Janeiro at Copacabana Beach um, watching this live concert. And then because of my position, so I had my, I had like two laptops open with feeds and communication with producers all around the world. So basically we're up for 24 hours straight. I was actually up for a hundred. I had, I figured out I had over the course of a hundred and 12 straight hours, I had a total of nine hours of sleep and not consecutively because I'd finished a call with Japan, with, with the team in, in Japan. And then I had to get on the phone with South Africa or on online with those people. And it was just nonstop. There's so many stories I could go on for ages. Al Gore was the spearhead. Um, uh, what, you know, he was sort of the name uh, spearhead of it. That was amazing as well. I ended up helping write a speech for Al Gore, like in the middle of the night. We thought he was writing his own. I can say I've written a, a speech for the vice president of the United States. Um, <laughs> Kevin Kevin Wall was the other person who had also done Live 8. They were the masterminds behind it. So that was probably the biggest, most rewarding. And there was something altruistic about it as well. So that was probably it. Uh, I'll just, without giving any description, uh, I was a supervising creative producer for uh, three winter classics with NBC. That was great fun. That I was just, um, uh, so that I was involved uh, not with the game, hockey ops as a game, but with, with the broadcast and with, or with the, um, the in-game broadcast. I worked closely with NBC who actually did the broadcast. Um, that was great. I spent two seasons. I worked on Extreme Makeover Home Edition which was also very rewarding because um, I was their disaster guy. I was a producer. I would go into towns with natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, floods, whatever, and figure out how we could help. And that was incredibly rewarding. And, you know, then things like the challenge of what we've, what we just did with the Emmys, it's, it's that, that from a technical and broadcast producer standpoint was, was really fun also. You mentioned that Syracuse University really was the catalyst that launched you on this career um, and towards this awesome work that you're doing in the entertainment industry. What was it about Syracuse that best prepared you to take on these challenges? Well, for one, it, it, it instilled a, a pa- Syracuse instilled a passion for television and broadcast and what you could do. That that that's first and foremost, and and the teachers and professors who I remain in touch with. Dick Breyer was my advisor. And I mean, it's, it's one of those cases where I hope he realizes the influence that he had on me. There were so many there that were in, you know, inspirational and influential in, in my success. Rick Wright, Professor Moeller, I mean, a whole bunch of guys. And again, I have so many stories about them as well. So that I'm that sure you have of plenty it. of good Professor Rick Wright stories you could share with us for being major market oh talent. And <laughs> good morning, radio broadcaster. No, good morning, future <laughs> radio broadcaster. And then also, I had the opportunity. I, I worked. I interned at WSTM TV three NBC affiliate in their sports department, and so I started you know, cutting their nightly highlights. And that was great experience and that they were so open to having 
Syracuse students. I mean, we're students and we're helping put on an actual real broadcast was kind of nutty to me. I, I always said to the, to the sports guys, what if I didn't get my highlights cut in time? He's like, yeah, you always do. I'm like, but what if I didn't? He goes, but you always do. You know, I thought that was, that was great. And Syracuse helped instill the confidence that I could, you know, get things like that done. And then after Syracuse, it's really the, the incredible alumni network of people that are out there and you realize you try and help each other and support each other. My first job was with NBC Sports and I would travel around to baseball games and football games and, you know, people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I get Bob Costas his orange juice. That's that. That was like kind of my first job. I would sit in the booth, and whatever him or Chris Collinsworth needed, I would I would get it for them. And Bob went to Syracuse, obviously, maybe the most famous of all <laughs> television alumni there. He worked at WSTM as well, and I th- it was just kind of cool that our paths. You know, I was following the path of this guy. Now, when I originally I thought even I wanted to be a sportscaster, but I quickly realized I like being behind the scenes and being the the guy pulling the strings rather than the talking head. Uh, and so I think that served me well also. I, I'll sort of tie up the Bob Costa story. I was in, so I'm producing the, this would have been the second, uh, no, no, the third winter classic. So we're in Boston at, at, at uh, Fenway and NBC had done the broadcast the year before, but I hadn't, you know, I just hadn't gotten the chance to really integrate myself with people. I was so busy. Second time around, I kind of knew what I was doing. And I see, I see Costas walking across the field, you know, right by the rink. And I was up in the, um, in the uh, press box and I went running down to him on the field. And I went up to him and I said, Bob, I don't want you to even pretend that you remember me, but I want to reintroduce myself. My name's David Parks. And my first job, I went to Syracuse and my first job out of Syracuse was getting you orange juice and, and whatever you needed at NBC, at uh, NFL football game broadcast. And he's like, oh my gosh, that's incredible, Dave. I'm so glad that you came up to me. He said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm the supervising creative producer of the, of the Winter Classic for the NHL. And he says, of course you are. That's what we do. That's what Syracuse grads do. We start getting people their orange juice. And then, you know, however many years later, we are running the show. And, and it was just, it was such a cool thing for him to say and for me to understand that even though it was many years removed from my time at Syracuse, that's what we do. That's what Syracuse grads do. I always tell everybody who, if you don't, if you haven't gone, you don't understand the power of the alumni network. There's 241,000 of us around the world who really want to advocate to push people to get to where they want to go. We all got a helping hand from somebody, some valuable career advice given to us by somebody before us to get to where we are And we just want to share that and pay it forward with the future generations of alumni that are to come from, from Syracuse. And, you know, David, we touched on this a little bit. I want to go back to, you're a huge sports fan and you played on the soccer team at Syracuse. What are your experiences like? What were they like being a student athlete and juggling those responsibilities? And what are some favorite memories you have from your playing career? You know, it's, 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 uh, it's not easy being a student athlete. And, and I really, honestly, I, I think that the, the commitment that I had to make for soccer wasn't nearly as much as what like the football players and basketball players have to do given their schedules and, and, 
you know, the travel that they do. We played almost all our games, you know, in, in the New England area and all. One of the reasons I chose Syracuse at the very beginning was I, I played high soccer in high school and we had a good good soccer team. I was far from the star of that team. But I had this thing in my head that I wanted to play college soccer at some level. And when I was, I looked at small schools, I looked at big schools. I was not like a recruited player. Um, it was more just me reaching out to coaches. But I, when I really thought about it, I knew, I knew after visiting Syracuse, I wanted to go to a big school just for all the other aspects of it, the options that you have, the sport, the, being able to go to basketball games like Syracuse games. So I kind of decided not to go to a small school, even though I had some coaches said, you don't want to go to a big division one school. You'll, you'll sit on the bench and here you can be a star. I mean, that's what they say to everybody. Right. Um, and uh, so I decided to go to Syracuse and I had reached out to the coach at the time and he was very responsive. And, and so about a month before school started, I got a letter, you know, Syracuse uh, athletic department and the um, coach had been fired. And the letter was from the new coach, Alden Shattuck, who had come from Hartwick. And it basically said, here's what's happened. And because we are coming to the university so late, we're just going to have a series of kind of open tryouts. And if you're still interested in playing, show up. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. Because I've had to make, at that point, I was making all my own opportunities anyways. And uh, so I show up and there are, the number's probably grown in, 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 in my head, but I want to say <laughs> there were like 200 guys out there to try out. I mean, it was a huge number of people. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a nightmare this is going to be. And of course, there were the recruits too. There were the guys who were already on the team. And then there were the, the, the super, super recruits, Joe Papaleo, guys like that, who were already stars coming out of high school. So I knew that we were vying for just a few spots. And what they do is they have a meeting and they said, look, we can't do a tryout with this many people. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to post a list tomorrow, um, you know, tonight at six o'clock. And if your name is on it, please come tomorrow for the tryouts. I knew my name was not going to be on that list. So sure enough, my name was not on the list. And I went back to my dorm and I was like, okay, Dave, what are you going to do about this? And I wrote this, you know, impassioned letter about why they had to give me a chance to try out. You know, I was the prolific scorer in high school and our team went to the city championship, even though it was just for private schools and it was this, that, and the other. And I showed up with my, you know, showed up with my cleats and shin guards and ready to play and expecting the worst. And I went up to him and I said, you need to see me play. You know, I need, I need a shot. I handed him a letter and he goes, ah, it's fine. Just go ahead. One more person isn't going to make a difference, right? I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. And went out and, and maybe played the best that I ever played prior to that. And, and maybe even played during any of my time at Syracuse. I remember I, I scored two pretty phenomenal goals from decent distance. So after the, after the, uh, that first day, the coach came up to me and, and, he handed me the letter back. He said, you don't need this. And that was it. So I got through the week and then actually ended up getting assigned to the junior varsity team, which was absolutely fine by me. So I played JV in the fall. And then in the spring, it became kind of a full spring season. And I got moved up to, to varsity for that. And then my career was sort of a back and forth type thing. And I just, but I love playing. I love my teammates. I loved um, the camaraderie of it. It was just, it was great. It was like it was our fraternity. And plus, there's a lot of cool stuff we had, like 
they, we had an athlete dining room, you know, where you could go and you could have steak every night if you wanted to. And it was, it was really fun. And so I got to scratch that itch. Um, I went abroad my, I, my spring semester uh, of uh, junior year. I did, you know, Syracuse in London and played for a club team over there, which was great. I came back my senior year and I chose not to play. I wanted to enjoy my senior year. I felt like I had, I had done what I wanted to do, which was to play Division I soccer at a, at a big university. It was a wonderful experience. I still went to the games and watched, but I was happy to just, you know, really live like a real student for one year. And, I, and I'm glad I did. I have no, regret, no regrets on that at all. And I've, I'm now, I've actually reconnected with Syracuse soccer. At some point recently, I, uh, a couple years ago, or I reached back out to the program. I still get a lot of stuff from, you know, once you're an athlete, you get all these different invitations. You can join the varsity club. You can, you know, I just put my post it on. They have a new um, kind of a uh, LinkedIn profile thing for athletes. So I reached out to Coach McIntyre, introduced myself, and he um, was so gracious. And he said, by the way, if you're ever on campus, please stop by, let me know. I'd love to meet you in person. And so when my daughter was looking at colleges, we, you know, she obviously looked at Syracuse. We went in and watched the men's practice and he introduced me to the team. And he was like, once, once a Syracuse soccer player, always a Syracuse soccer player. So I, I love that. You know, I know personally speaking, I can't wait to see what your next challenges are that you knock down and accomplish. Because if you can pull these virtual award shows off and keep ramping up the intensity, I can't wait to see what's next because, you know, you, you keep knocking down these barriers. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I mean, I, you know, you make a decision in your career and there's, there's, I kind of find there's two paths that I could have taken. And one is you find the one thing that you want to do and you stay with that and you work your way until you're at the very top. I actually started as a cameraman and my goal at one point was I want to shoot big movies and a lot of the people that I started off in film with, um, I went to graduate school at, at USC for their for film school. Uh, and, you know, my friends from there are now Academy Award winning, top of their, you know, in, top of the industry in, in what they do. And that sometimes I'm like, yep, if I'd stuck with it, that would probably be me now. But in consistently reinventing myself, continually trying new things, saying yes to new opportunities. What I've experienced has been just amazing. And, and I, I can't help but think so much more rewarding than if I had just stayed doing one thing. Even if I had just stayed with NBC Sports all the way through. That was what Bob thought that I had worked my, Bob Costa thought I had worked my way up from PA to you know, executive. And I was like, oh no. No, no, I went way around. I went to LA and I went, was in movies and I did this and that. So yeah, it's just the real takeaway is, is just be open to new opportunities. It may not pay you as much. It may be hard. Some of it may, may not work out, but you never know what doors they'll open. And, and my payback now to the school, I try and, I try and bring on a, a Syracuse alum or student for every project that I do. So I will reach out wherever I am, especially most of my stuff is out of LA. I love doing that. I love, and it's my way of saying, this is what Syracuse did for me. And this is how I'm going to help the next generation. Well, David, listen, I know we've had a fascinating journey. I've really enjoyed getting to tell your 
Orange Success Story here on the Q's Conversations Alumni Podcast. Again, thank you so much for your time. Continued best luck with your endeavors and, uh, and go orange and, and keep hiring those Syracuse grads because you're right. It's a great way to pay it forward. Will do. Thank you. It really means a lot to be able to do this and I appreciate it and go orange. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.